it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks. Well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight is episode 189. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to read through some great listener questions and do a little give and take and answer some of those. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and read the first question. And then Andrew will go ahead and give us a great answer like he always does. So first question I have is, Andrew, I am also an absolute beginner and recent subscriber to the newsletter. Appreciate this post and your podcast. I've listened to 40 episodes in the last two weeks, and I plan to keep going until I'm all caught up. I've been working from the beginning and from the most recent episodes. What's the difference between opening an individual account with Stash or some other app versus with a brokerage account with Fidelity, Charles Schwab, etc.? I'm currently paying $1 per month in fees to Stash. It seems like a no-brainer to continue especially since it has drip options, but I'm sure I'm missing something. Thanks, JJ. Andrew, what are your thoughts on uh, JJ's great question? It's an excellent question and something that, you know, these details are very small, particularly when you're comparing, you know, what's the difference between this app and that app, you know, and Fidelity has an app, Schwab has an app, Stash has an app, Robinhood has an app. Like it, it all sounds like it, it's all the same thing, but you want to do a little bit of research and understand they're not all the same thing. And if what happened with the GameStop short squeeze taught us anything, it's that, you know, when, when you get involved with certain brokers, things can happen that, that don't tend to happen with, with some of the bigger ones. So let's talk about first, like the big kind of reputable brokers. So you have Schwab. I know Dave's had a great experience with them. I have Fidelity, I also have Merrill Edge, and I have Ally Invest. And I'm really big fans of Fidelity and Merrill Edge. And 
it's basically because they're giving you the best they're giving you the best experience and and they're giving you a good price for it. So as an example, um obviously everything now is commission free. You don't have to pay for trade. So you can't compare brokers in that way like like you used to when I first started out. But when it comes to Stash as a perfect example, Stash has three tiers to their plans. They have a dollar a month, a three dollar a month, and a nine dollar a month plan. So JJ, you know, you talk about how you're on the one dollar a month plan, which doesn't sound like uh, a big deal. But if you're doing $150 a month, which is what I recommend with the e-letter as it's just a very base start to, to get your personal finances and your financial future on the right path, that's gonna add up um every every month. And so if you think a dollar compared to a hundred dollars is about one percent, so a hundred dollars to one hundred and fifty is maybe half a percent or somewhere in that range. So you're really losing. You're basically you're buying investments trying to get ten percent a year, but you're already crippling yourself by one percent or half a percent or whatever that is. And you know that's not chump change. That could be a dividend in a good paying dividend stock that's maybe more of a growth type investment half a percent dividend yields pretty decent if you're getting the growth there so by having a fee where you're guaranteed to lose not only are you limiting your compounding but it's almost as if that that compounding effect is working against you almost like debt would work against you so a broker like Fidelity or a broker like Merrill Edge, they don't charge these sort of account fees. And that goes a long way when you're investing and continually putting money in. And also a downside with Stash that I've seen here, they have a $3 a month plan and you have to pay that if you want to do a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. So IRAs are very good for investors whether you're starting out or whether you've been investing for a while to at least put some money into an IRA because you're getting a tax shield either on the front of that or the back of that. And there's really no reason to not take that tax shield if you're going to be investing this stuff for a long time anyways, which is the kind of time horizon you want to have when you're buying stocks. And so now instead of paying a dollar a month, you're having to pay $3 a month when again, you can have a broker like Fidelity or Schwab not have to pay anything and you have a Roth IRA, traditional IRA, regular brokerage account, any account you could want and you don't have to pay for that. So these fees that sound like little things, um, they really do add up and even 1% a year. I mean, go back to this one, $1 for 150, that's on every single investment you're making, you're, you're crippling yourself by a percent. And that's not easy, you know. I mean, my goal for the e-leather is to beat the market by one percent. It doesn't sound like a lot, but the difference over forty years is the difference between six hundred thousand and a million dollars. So these little percentage points that, when you first start, don't sound like a lot, they end up as a lot. And so you don't want to cripple yourself, particularly if you're starting with low amounts of money with a disadvantage like um, a recurring fee for your brokerage. And I echo everything Andrew is saying there. That's right on the money. And why 
when you have options out there that are just as good and free and you don't have to have those costs mounting up against you, why why do it? It just it it as Andrew was saying, it cripples you from the beginning and it'll it it will add up. It compounds over time. And if you have and it, the other thing to think about, too, is let's say that you continue down the path with one of these apps that's charging you. When you want to move, it's a lot harder to do because now you have to sell those positions. You have to close that account. You have to go to a new broker. You have to open that account again and rebuy those companies if you want to continue to invest in them. And then you don't have the option of, you know, doing something like if you got a really great price when you first bought it and now you have to kind of give up that, that those additional gains over a longer period of time. And so, it just kind of hampers you in that respect. And again, I guess I just kind of go back to if you have the option that's going to give you the same service and the same opportunities that you would have with another broker, but there's no charges for it, then I would probably go with the one that has no charges. And for me, Charles Schwab has been awesome. I've had great experience with them and they've been very helpful. They were helpful in opening the account. They were helpful after opening the account. They even called me three or four times after I opened the account to see if I had any questions, if I needed any further assistance and all those kinds of things, which I felt like was above and beyond and not something that you get a lot from customer service, let alone in the banking industry. So uh, I've had great experiences with it. And the other bonuses, it also you also can do it with a checking or a savings account. So if you want to bank with them as well to make it convenient, you can certainly do that. So there are other additional benefits that you can get from, from that kind of relationship. So it's just another thing, I guess, to think about. And that's what I like about my Merrill Edge account is it's linked up to my Bank of America online banking. And so I can see all of my balances for my Merrill account, which includes like a brokerage account, a 529 retirement accounts. I could see that when I log into Bank of America, which is super cool. And one last thing about this whole thing, you know, the fact that they charge a dollar a month, $3 a month, and then $9 a month for their premium plan. What happened with a subscription like Netflix, as an example, once they had a big base and they want to keep growing, what did they do? They raised the price of the subscription. So if they have a bunch of people where they know people don't want to move brokerages because it's inconvenient, like you said, Dave, it takes time. I know I had to do a rollover from one brokerage to another, and it took like a week for for the money to move. And I had to sell out positions at a place where I didn't want to sell out. And then, of course, the stocks moved a lot in that week, and that was very frustrating. So to your point, you want to set this stuff up so you don't have to deal with problems later. And so going with somebody that I might might have learned the hard way a little bit, but I, I there's a reason why my favorites now are Fidelity, Schwab, and Merrill Edge. And that's that's who I recommend today. Yeah, the, the, those are great points. And I guess another thing to think about too is we have no benefit. We have no skin in the game to recommend these, these companies. These are things that we use on our, on our, our own. And we don't have any benefit other than we feel like these are the best things for everybody to use and they're helpful for everybody. So that's why we recommend them. All right. Moving on to the next question. Uh, Andrew and Dave, I'm so glad that I have found your IFP 
podcast. My brother tried to turn me into investing through Robinhood last year and seeing investing news and social media sparked my interest to finally learn more about it recently. Your approach and attention to detail of businesses is exactly what I was looking for and aligns with my values so much. Uh, one question, when purchasing stocks with dividends, if you already had existing stocks in that company before the ex-dividend date, but you purchase more after that, will you only be paid out the dividends for the shares you owned prior to that date? Or does that apply to all shares at the time of the payout? Andrew, what are your, what's your response to that? That would be cool. We could do a lot of tricky things if you could just put one share in on a bunch of companies and then add a bunch to get paid out and then take them out again. But no, awesome. it's, it's, the, yeah, it's the shares um, that you have before the ex-dividend date. Now, what's interesting, you can hold a stock through the ex-dividend date and then sell the stock before the dividend gets paid and you still get the dividend. But these kind of like timing things... When you hear about it, you you might think, oh, maybe I can like make a trading strategy out of it, but you really can't. Like as an example, when the ex dividend date happens, the stock price will drop after the fact to account for the fact that a company is paying a dividend, and so you know you can't jump in and out of ex dividend dates to try to make a profit because the market automatically adjusts to that, and so. When it comes to just holding dividend stocks, you just got to hold them and try to get in before the ex-dividend day if you can. But if not, oh, well, you, you'll you'll get hit on the next quarterly round. And that's how that all works. That's very interesting. So for those of, of our listeners who are not familiar with what an ex-dividend date, could you kind of briefly explain that to them? Yeah, it's basically the date that you have to own shares in a company in order to get a dividend. So there's usually three important dates with the dividend. There will be the date that they announce the dividend, the date that you have to hold the dividend by, which is the ex-dividend date. I'm sorry, hold the stock by to get the dividend. That's the ex-dividend date. And then the, the dividend actually being paid. And so something I've noticed with a lot of companies is you'll kind of have those dates back to back to back. So they might announce a dividend. They're like, hey, by the way, in a week or in two weeks, if you have our stock, you'll get a dividend. And then you'll get the dividend shortly after that. So that's something where you can look at a company's dividend history in order to see when they've paid their dividends in the past. And generally, if things are going well, they'll continue that into the future. So if a company's paid January, April, July, September, then um, you know you you could you could Google a ticker. Say you want to look at Apple, you could say AAPL dividend history, and then you just click on one of those links, and they'll show you. They should show you those three dates: the dividend announced, the ex dividend date, and the dividend paid date. And you can kind of see if a company is about to pay a dividend or not. Or if you're just wanting to check up on the, the companies you have, that's another way to look. And you can see when you can expect some dividends to come in. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Do companies typically broadcast that well in advance or is that more of a quarter to quarter kind of thing? 
Yeah, that's a good question. It's 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 pretty fast, so it it tends to be quarter to quarter and like for me, I'm buying stocks and I'm recommending stocks once a month. So there's there's not much of a chance for me to pick something um to to get ahead of that, if that makes sense. So like a lot of times they'll make an announcement at the same time they announce earnings and it'll be once a quarter. And so if I was trying to I don't know, like if I was trying to look across the field and see, okay, which of these companies are going to pay a really big dividend, I'm not going to have much time to make a move because they'll probably announce it. And then in a couple of weeks, they'll ex-dividend it. And then a couple of weeks after that, they'll pay it. So it'll happen all within like the same month or the same 30-day period. So it's not like I can go in and like pick off a bunch of high-growing dividend things and and get out and get in and get out. It's it's going to be very hard to do unless you're day trading. Um, and so for the long-term investor, I don't think it's something to to worry too much about. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 good advice. So the drip king has spoken, folks. All right. <laughs> let's uh let's move on to the next question. Uh hello. Uh, I have 
I keep hearing uh, how the 10-year yield is causing stocks to go down. Can you explain why so that CNBC will make sense to me again? Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Andrew, what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I love it. So maybe let's get you to explain the 10-year yield a little bit. Just maybe explain why interest rates are so important um, and, and why the 10-year why the yields looked at um, very closely for that. Okay. Well, it has to do with valuations. So the 10-year yield is closely tied. Let's go back for just a second here. The 10-year yield, when we were talk about that, what we're referring to is a T-bill. So it's a treasury bond that's a 10-year bond, but it's referred to as a bill. And it indicates how long the interest rates will be for a 10-year investment in a bond that you buy from the Treasury Department. So the reason why it has a big impact on what happens in the markets is uh, several things. So the first one is it has to do with valuations. And when I'm talking about valuations, I'm talking about the methods that we use to try to determine what the value of a company is in the stock market. And one of the ways that we do that is we use discount rates or different kinds of rates. And a lot of people use the 10-year rate as one of their base rates. It's considered what's called a risk-free rate. And the reason why they call it a risk-free rate is because the 10-year rate is backed by the full faith and, and governance of the United States government. And until now, up until now, so far, the U.S. government has never defaulted on a loan because a bond is a loan. It's a debt that we're buying from the government. And then when we give them the money back, they give us our money back. So uh, it's when we're investing, we look at trying to find the best return that we can get. And so when you look at a risk-free rate or a absolute lowest risk that you can buy, most people look at a 10-year yield as that's one of the, I guess, ratings that people will look at as something that you could buy and not worry about losing your money if you bought this. So when rates, when the 10-year rate goes up and down, that indicates to investors in the stock market that this is what a, a price should be that we'd be willing to bet that if I put $100 in a T-bill, that I would get my $100 back plus whatever interest I would make. And that's a risk-free bet, just like putting your money in, in a savings account, same kind of idea. So when we're looking at valuations or trying to figure out the fair price of a company like Apple or Microsoft, one of the ways we do that is we use a discount rate. And I'm not going to go into all the technical jargon, but basically think of the risk-free rate as the one of the main drivers that helps us determine what a price should be and how much we should discount that price. And as the bond prices move up, the valuations will start to come down. And when the bond prices go down, like they did in March, for example, in March of last year in 2020, right before everything kind of hit the fan, the 10 year treasury yields were, don't hold me to this, but probably in the 1.2 to 1.5 range. And then the Fed dropped the rates in the markets to almost zero, which caused those T bill rates 
to drop to almost nothing. They dropped to, I believe at the low, they're about 0.4 to 0.5, somewhere in that range, which is historically low. Hardly ever seen that in, in the history of the United States. It was horrible. And when that rate went down, then everything became super cheap to buy and the prices just skyrocketed. And that's why you were seeing companies like Tesla, Snowflake, Airbnb, DoorDash, Peloton, uh, Twilo, Spotify skyrocket through the roof because now their valuations are, in other words, the fair value of the company is now worth a whole lot of money according to the way that we model all these things. And again, I don't want to get into all the, the nitty gritty of that, but basically remember that the 10 year yield has a lot to do with how much a stock is worth in the market. And when the, the prices or the yield of a bond goes up, the valuations of those drop because now people can invest in a 10 year bond and get a safe return. And so more, conservative money will move towards that as opposed to investing in a stock. And when those yields drop, then people will start to move towards buying stocks because they can get better returns and it's air quote safer to invest in riskier companies like that at that time. So does that kind of help explain some of it? That's yeah, that was a great way. You towed the line there because it can get very technical and very complex. Uh, Uh, I like the comparison you made because it's, as those yields go up, um, it's less attractive to buy stocks because those stocks are more risky. And so the higher the risk-free yield is, the government 10-year uh, treasury yield, the higher that is, the more likely you are to buy that instead of something more risky like a stock. And so when it's the opposite, it's the same thing. And so when analysts are looking at making valuations, basically what their discount rate is doing is it's comparing that attractiveness between um, how risky this stock is compared to how risky um, the the risk-free yield is and how high the risk-free yield is um, wraps back around into how how that compares with how risky the um, the stock you're looking to buy is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I I think, Matt, that's why CNBC is talking about this more right now, because the the yields on those have gone up. And when we're talking about yields, we're talking about the the return that you can get for investing in that that bond. And it really refers to the coupon that you could make. And the the more the, the price of the bond falls, the higher the yield goes up. And as the yield get, goes up, then that becomes a theoretically a more invest an interesting investment. And so what people do is they, if they see the yields go up, they start to think now that maybe stocks are going to become riskier and they're going to start getting out of more of the riskier assets. And so companies that are riskier, like, I mean, you can, you could name just about anything right now. And they're, Yeah, exactly. Zoom. Perfect. So Zoom has exploded over the last year because of the work from home aspect of the economy that exploded in the last year. And when you take the fact that yields are going up, then all of a sudden a company like Zoom, which this is not a bash on the company or a bash on the 
the product itself. It's more about the stock price. So the stock price becomes now it becomes a little more less attractive to invest in now because now it looks like there might be other opportunities to invest. And why would you put money in a company you don't think is going to go up anymore and may actually go down? Then you're going to take your money out of that and put it into something else, whether it's a T whether it's a 10-year T-bill or whether it's another company that's maybe not as risky. And so what happens is everything kind of rotates out of one sector of the market into another sector. Think of it like a seesaw. Everything just kind of ebbs and flows back and forth, just like going up and down on a seesaw. And so people start taking money out of Zoom and they put it into something else. And that causes the price of Zoom to start falling. And so that's why CNBC is talking about this because they spend a lot of time talking about these exciting companies that are all exploding across the market. And when things turn, then that's what they're going to talk about. The other thing too, and we shouldn't get too deep into this either, but interest rates are such a huge component of the economy as a whole. And the 10-year yield is probably the most important interest rate, and it tends to drive all the other interest rates you see. So let's use another example like buying a home and mortgages. So the lower that interest rates are, the more that people are likely to buy a mortgage because when you go to get a mortgage from a bank, the lower interest rate on your mortgage means you're going to pay less in interest per month. So that monthly payment is going to be less so you can afford to buy a bigger home. And so you can use that same logic with, say, you're a business owner. When you're trying to start a business, let's say you got to hire you know, five employees, you need to get uh, two company cars, and you need to go rent an office. And maybe you don't have all of that cash sitting in your bank account. You can go to a bank and go get a loan. And the lower the loan, you know, the lower the interest rate you can get for that loan, the more money you'll be able to to borrow from the bank or the lower your monthly payments will be, the easier it will be for you to borrow that. And so whether you're talking about the interest rate on a loan for a business or the interest rate for a mortgage or the interest rate for credit cards, all these interest rates are all tied together and they're all working in this economy. And so when when rates go lower, money flows more freely, you know, more homes can be bought, more businesses can be open. It's just it's this big nice spiral upwards of prosperity. And so when you look at it moving the other way, it turns and it's the flip side. Money tightens, credit tightens, people can't borrow as much. Maybe people start to default on their loans because they have rates that adjust and, and go up as as the overall interest rates go up. And so that can cycle into something like a recession or depression. Now, that's not to say that that's what we're seeing now, but that's why when you see movements in interest rates and particularly the 10-year yield, that's why you'll see movements in the economy. And that's one aspect. And then, of course, you have the whole stock market aspect. And like Dave said, I mean, it's it's these huge high flyers that are so ridiculously overpriced that are the most sensitive to these rates because for whatever reason, they're the ones that get bid up um, when money is cheap. And whether they're relying on that or they're relying on these impossibly high valuations, once the tide turns and that seesaw kind of starts to tip the other way, then you know it, it crashes just as high as and just as fast as it falls. So you have to be careful about that. And it's another good 
reason why investing and value investing is so attractive because you don't get you still get the seesaw swings, but they're not like fifty feet seesaws. Maybe they're like five foot seesaws if you're doing it right. And that works just fine for me because when I when you get older, that fifty feet seems a lot higher. <laughs> you got to be careful. <laughs> well, I'm scared of the heights, so it's always seemed high to me. Uh, yeah, there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, that was an excellent point on the on the the interest rates for homes. That that was a great point. So, all right, uh, let's move on to the last question. So, I have hello and thank you for all your insights. Please explain in your podcast that phenomenon of buying the rumor news and selling the news. I have followed the Churchill slash Lucid deal, and it does not make sense to me. Andrew, would you like to help clarify some of that for them? I think you probably know a lot more about this Churchill Lucid deal than I do. As far as buying the rumor, selling the news, it's a nice phrase, but you know, I don't think it's a good way to invest for the long term. No, it's not. So here's what little I do know about the Churchill Lucid deal. Uh, Lucid is a EV uh, producer. So they're another one of the, the electric vehicle companies that's coming online. Uh, Churchill, the Churchill Lucid deal, it's a, uh, it's a SPAC. So it's a reverse IPO, I believe. And they are the company that's helping Lucid go public. And so Lucid is a, one of the newer car companies that's coming out. They're going to make an electric vehicle. And I'm actually looking at a picture of one right now. It's quite beautiful. But here's, here. so they are not producing any vehicles yet. So the, the factory that they're building, which is in uh, Casa Grande, Arizona, is actually not finished yet. They finished the first phase of the building at the end of December, but they're actually still working on finishing the building to make the cars. So their projections are to start producing their first vehicle sometime this spring, which is coming up here in a few months. And they're looking to produce about 7,000 vehicles this year. Uh, their hope is that next year they'll be able to produce 30,000 vehicles. And in a few years, they're hoping to get up to about 365,000 vehicles. Now, keep in mind that Tesla, who has been doing this for a while now, uh, it took them almost 17 years to get up to 500,000. And Elon Musk, is he's a smart dude. And he's, he talked about what kind of production hell he was in trying to get some of his vehicles through the assembly line and produced and, and everything. So I think 365,000 is probably a little bit uh, optimistic, possibly. And anyway, so they're hoping to be able to get all this done by 2028. So we're looking at seven years to grow from 7,000 to about 365,000. Uh, I, you know how I feel about Tesla. So I'm, <laughs> I'm even more probably bearish on this, on this situation. I'm not saying that it won't it won't come to pass, but it's a little bit like Nikola, where they don't even have a vehicle yet, and people are already starting to invest in it in the stock market. And I get, you know, being first in and and that whole opportunity, but that kind of stuff is just that's just not for me. That's that's speculation. That's not investing, and that's not the kind of thing that that I think is a good idea. And especially if we start seeing a turn in some of these more riskier investments, I think this could be, 
kind of kind of a scary situation to get into. So I would probably avoid this like the 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 plague if I could. Well, I mean, isn't that phrase itself buying the rumor? I mean, that kind of implies speculation. Yes, it does. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I remember when I first really started to get into this whole investing shtick, uh, I was working for Wells Fargo and I had a, a gentleman that I worked for. His name was Aaron and he was the financial advisor in the branch that I worked at. He was amazing, smart guy. I really liked him. And he was so open to me just asking him questions. And I asked him a lot of questions. And I remember one day I was sitting at my desk and it was a, kind of a slow moment. And I happened to pull up the news and I was reading something and it was kind of along the, the lines of, you know, there was this, you know, horrible news about some company, but the stock price was exploding through the roof. And I was like, oh, why? It, does, it doesn't make sense. Why, why when earnings are down and they have some scandal going on is all of a sudden now everybody wants to buy the company. And it doesn't make sense to me. So I went and asked, asked Aaron what was going on. He said, he said, they sell the news. And I'm like, what? And he said, they sell the news. He said, when things are bad, they think that, you know, that this is an opportunity to get in before things get really good. And so they go out and they start bidding up the price of the company. Everybody wants to pile in. And kind of the reverse happens when something good comes out. They think, oh, you know, something, you know, the, the stock price is going to go up. And so they want to sell with their gains and move on to something else. And I went, oh, that kind of makes sense. It's kind of reversed idea of psychology but it makes sense i get it so that's kind of that's how it was explained to me when i first kind of got into investing Uh, yeah it's a perfect perfect explanation of it i think all right so here's kind of the deal here's here's my thought i guess on the selling the rumor buying the news kind of thing my idea of that is i'm going to buy the company based on the potential valuation of the company as well as the future prospects of prosperity for the company. And I'm going to base that more on what the company is telling me, what I see in the market as far as other conditions, and also what the financials tell me about the company and what I believe about the management and their capabilities to perform uh, what's going on with the company. It's a little bit like I try to pay attention to all the things that I feel like that matter for the business that I'm going to buy, because again, I'm buying a business. I'm not buying some ticker on a screen on a computer. It's a little bit like trying to find a significant other and dating them based on rumors, you know, about them in school, as opposed to meeting the person and finding out about them and discovering that you have lots in common and that you have a great relationship. And I feel like that's kind of the same application that you can think about with buying a company. When you buy a company, you're you're making an investment into a relationship with the management as well as all the people that work for the company, as well as the product that they sell and make and the services that they offer and all the things that go into all the aspects of those. And it's not just buying or selling it on a rumor or what the news is 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 talking about with a particular company. And it's more about getting to know the company and understanding how it works and how it under, it does what it does and focusing more on that as opposed to what CNBC has to say about some particular company in a 14-second 
soundbite because that is more along the lines of speculation than it is about investing. And it's, 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 it's no different than any other rumor that you experience in your social life or that you experience it at work. It, it may come to pass and it may not come to pass. And do you make a decision based on something you heard somebody say, or do you make a decision based on your experience and your knowledge and what you know about something? So I, I guess that's kind of my thought on that. There was a lot of wisdom there. Okay. It was very well said. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to write us those fantastic questions. Keep them coming. This is fantastic. And you guys are asking us some great questions. And hopefully you guys are getting some good takeaways from all this. And without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply